0: The time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. I'm your host, Dan Graupner.
1: And I'm your host, Amy Owen. In tonight's news...
0: More on that Republican bill to legalize medical marijuana with some strict limitations.
1: Tomorrow is your last chance to participate in MMSD's superintendent search.
0: A researcher discusses the nationwide conservative push for more educational transparency.
1: And in the second half, the benefits of mindfulness, a closer look at heating pumps, and a motorcycle's journey across the ocean. This is Amy Owen and Dan Grauchner with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in snowy downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
0: Just as plowing from the first storm wraps up, another severe storm is set to hit Madison late tonight and last through tomorrow and into Saturday. The snow could hit up to 13 inches along with winds gusting as high as 35 miles per hour. The city of Madison says that it will start plowing and salting paths around midnight tonight and into the morning hours. Still, if you're planning on being out tonight or on Friday morning, be ready for slippery roads and conditions that are expected to worsen throughout the day. Meanwhile, if your trash pickup is usually on Fridays, the city is asking you to set your trash and recycling out by 5:30 a.m. All non-essential in-city, in-person city and county services will be closed tomorrow.
1: The re-election campaign of President Joe Biden has appointed three political veterans to oversee operations in Wisconsin and six other key battleground states, reports USA Today. Operatives in the Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigns will serve as battleground states director and deputy director. In case you are counting, there are 298 days remaining until the 2024 presidential election.
0: Meanwhile, in state politics, an effort to recall Assembly Speaker Robin Voss over his perceived failure to support former President Donald Trump may run afoul of a recent state Supreme Court ruling. Matthew Snorrik of Burlington notified the Wisconsin Elections Commission Wednesday that he intends to circulate petitions to recall Voss, a Republican from Rochester. But several legal experts tell the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that the Wisconsin Supreme Court's recent redistricting decision complicates the recall issue. They say a recall election is out of the question, while redistricting for the fall elections is in progress. A lawyer for the Wisconsin Elections Commission told Voss in a letter yesterday that the commission must study whether an officeholder can be recalled when their district has been ruled unconstitutional, also reports the Journal Sentinel.
1: Low-income families with school-age children will get $120 in extra grocery benefits while schools are out this summer, the Federal Department of Agriculture announced yesterday. Wisconsin is among 35 states that will participate in the program, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Most children will be enrolled for the benefits automatically because they participate in other programs, the USDA stated, but the department cautioned that some families may have to fill out an application.
0: Five candidates are seeking appointment to the Madison City Council seat of Alder Kristen Slack, who resigned to address a serious health health issue in her family. The candidates are John Guy Kerr, Joshua Miller, Richard Pearson, Joseph Rowling, and Michael Rosenblum. Slack's successor, representing West Side neighborhoods in the city's 19th district, would fill the remainder of her term, which ends in April 2025.
1: And back to the storm, which has forced organizers to cancel plans for the Martin Luther King Jr. free community dinner, scheduled for tomorrow night. Meanwhile, other events organized by the King Coalition are expected to proceed over the weekend and into the Monday holiday. As a reminder, the WORT Live Local News will be preempted next Monday in honor of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Instead, we'll be broadcasting the 39th Madison and Dane County Observance, live from the Overture Center, starting at 6 p.m. The observance will also feature a performance of the MLK Community Choir and keynote speaker Terrence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine. The event is open to the public. More details are at mlkcoalition.org.
0: Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories.
1: On Monday, State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and several of his Republican colleagues unveiled a medical cannabis bill. But it has a rough road to Governor Evers' desk. State Democrats say the bill doesn't go far enough. And earlier today, Republican State Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew says it's a non-starter and would-be government overreach. For more on the bill and how we got to be one of the last states to legalize marijuana, WORT news producer Faye Parks has the details.
0: So I've seen folks with multiple sclerosis, depression, ADHD, and while I can't tell them, and I wouldn't tell them that cannabis is a magic cure for any of the symptoms that they're experiencing, anecdotally, a lot of these people have experienced some relief.
2: That was Alan Robinson, co-founder of Madison's Herbal Aspect, which sells cannabis products at three dispensaries across the city. And while technically cannabis is illegal in Wisconsin, many of their products can still get you high. That's thanks to a change in federal law in 2018 under the U.S. Farm Bill. That legislation removed hemp-derived products from the Schedule One substance list and loosened regulations for products that contain low levels of THC. Now, in Wisconsin, products that contain less than 0.3% of THC can be sold legally in many forms, from gummies to vapes leading to a proliferation of products containing CBD or containing Delta-8 THC, Delta-9 THC, and so on. But cannabis products with higher levels of THC, frequently referred to as marijuana, are still illegal under Wisconsin law. In fact, it's a Schedule I substance in the state. Possession is a misdemeanor and a felony for subsequent offenses. Selling or distributing marijuana is also a felony, Growing your own plants is a felony under most circumstances. Farmers who participate in a state-run program to grow cannabis plants to low levels of THC are the exception. The combination of federal, state, and local regulations around the cannabis plant, the root of marijuana, CBD, and Delta products, has led to a patchwork of conflicting regulations. That's as many states have opted to legalize medical marijuana or expand to allow recreational marijuana over the last decade. Despite public support for the change, Wisconsin is one of just 12 states in the nation that has yet to make it happen. In 2019, a Marquette Law School poll found Wisconsinites want action on legalization. 83% of Wisconsin voters said that medical marijuana should be legalized in the state. Despite that, Republican lawmakers have historically rebuffed attempts to make that happen. On Monday, State Assembly Republicans held a press conference to announce a medical cannabis bill. One that has some strict limitations. This was an unexpected step. According to the Wisconsin State Legislature's database, lawmakers have introduced medical cannabis bills in every legislative session since 2009. Those bills, alongside others seeking to legalize recreational cannabis or reduce penalties, did not pass in the Republican-held legislature. If this Republican-authored bill is passed, You could get cannabis products with a THC content higher than 0.3%, as long as you have a doctor's note. The bill requires a diagnosis of one of 15 medical conditions, including cancer, HIV-AIDS, glaucoma, severe chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, and terminal illness with life expectancy of less than a year. And the legal cannabis products would include gummies, concentrates, oils, tinctures, pills, gels, creams vapors, patches, liquids, or forms administered by a nebulizer. Smokable marijuana flower would not be available for purchase. Those cannabis products would be controlled like a highly regulated pharmaceutical drug with several levels of verification for its production and purchase, and they would only be available at five state-run dispensaries. Ari Brown is a senior research associate with the Wisconsin Policy Forum a nonpartisan research organization that has produced several reports on cannabis policy and economics in the state.
3: Those are not dispensaries that your average Wisconsin resident would be able to go in and legally purchase marijuana.
2: Alan Robinson says that five dispensaries is not sufficient for the entire state.
4: I think
5: that health care should be accessible and
0: uncomplicated. Imagine having only five DMVs in Wisconsin, right? It's amazing that the party of small government wants to be the only dispenser of, of cannabis products.
2: According to a report from Wisconsin's nonpartisan Legislative Fiscal Bureau, Wisconsin residents generated more than $36 million in sales tax for Illinois in 2022 alone. However, the proposed program would not generate any sort of revenue for the state. According to Brown, this is one of the more unique quirks in the bill.
3: The state would set prices and set those prices intentionally so that there is no profit being made. It's just to kind of recoup the costs of operation.
2: Otherwise, the bill resembles medical cannabis laws already in effect across the country. Brown says that the list of medical conditions, the limited number of dispensaries, and the exclusion of smokable products are all fairly standard. In an interview yesterday, State Senator Melissa Agard, a Democrat from Madison who has been introducing cannabis legalization proposals for more than a decade, told WORT that she finds the bill's timing suspect. The legislative session is starting to wind down. So whether or not this bill is actually being introduced in earnest to be able to pass or if it's because this is a very important election year, not only for Wisconsin, but for our nation, that's yet to be determined. And she says that the bill doesn't go far enough. In October, Senator Agard introduced a bill that would legalize medical and recreational cannabis and regulate its production, processing and sale. It would also expunge past convictions for cannabis-related crimes and set aside cannabis-generated tax revenue for diversity, equity, and inclusion grants. Alan Robinson says he finds this bill more promising.
0: Senator Agard's proposal aligns much more faithfully with public sentiment, offering a a holistic approach to legalization that Robinson's bill just falls short to capture.
2: The bill, and its counterpart in the state assembly, are both currently in committee. As of this broadcast, no state Republicans are listed as co-sponsors on either bill. As for the Republican proposal, Senator Egard says she'd be willing to sit down with her colleagues to find a bipartisan solution, but no one has reached out. And, as of right now, the bill does not have a counterpart in the state Senate. That's as, earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew said the bill is a non-starter and that Senate Republicans are unlikely to approve state-run dispensaries. Representative John Plummer, a Republican from Lodi, and one of the bill's authors, declined WORT's request for comment. But at Monday's press conference, he told reporters that they hope to send the measure to Governor Evers' desk in the coming months. Governor Evers included a measure to legalize recreational marijuana in his latest budget, the third time he has attempted to do so since taking office. And for the third time, the Republican-held legislature struck it out of the final budget. According to figures from the governor's office, approving recreational marijuana would have generated more than $44 million in fiscal year 2025. Last Thursday, Governor Evers told the Wisconsin State Journal that he would consider passing the Republican proposal as long as it was not filled with poison pills. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
0: Administration for the Madison School District say that they've received nearly 60 applications to fill the job of the district's next superintendent. Now comes the process of selecting them. The final interviews for those applicants are slated to take place in about one month, but the public's deadline to submit questions and nominate interviewers is tomorrow at 5 p.m. With the new superintendent planned to be chosen by the end of this school year, the hiring committee says they hope to keep the public involved all the way to the finish line. WORT reporter Willow Polish has more.
6: MMSD plans to have its new superintendent by the end of this school year, a spokesperson tells WORT Today, and the live-streamed interviews on February 6th and 7th are one of the final hurdles in the hiring process. Members of the public who want to submit questions for the interviews or nominate interview panel members must do so by tomorrow at 5 p.m. Mike Herding, a longstanding MMSD employee, says everyone is hopeful to see the end of this process.
5: We're excited about the possibilities of a new superintendent and there will be a plethora of support to ensure that our new superintendent is successful.
6: Hiring would lead to a conclusion of nearly a year-long process so far since former MMSD Superintendent Carlton Jenkins announced his plans to retire last year and officially stepped down at the end of July. He led the district for just about three years. The search for the next superintendent has been led by Chicago-based consulting firm Alma Advisory Group, a different consultant than the group that led the search process the last time, around four years ago. So far, the search has yielded nearly 60 applicants, and starting February 6th and 7th, some of those applicants will receive an interview. Back in September, Alma Advisory Group representative Sylvia Flowers told WORT that they're invested in listening to the community through the whole search process.
5: You know, in our, our philosophy is that everyone has equal value and that our strength really comes from listening thoughtfully and helping us craft together what the job profile for the superintendent
6: will be based on the input of the community and the board during the first week of october consultants led three public feedback sessions across the south side of madison according to herding the search committee found those sessions helpful
5: i think the feeling that i picked up was optimism hope uh, understanding of the complexity of the job that we're expecting a lot uh, from a new superintendent but excitement and hope, I
6: think. The consultants also sent out a community survey last fall, which generated more than 3,000 responses. According to the district, respondents emphasized the need for the district to prioritize diversity, accessibility, and mental health services. Those aspects were highlighted in the superintendent job posting. That posting emphasized the high-profile role of the superintendent stating in part that the next superintendent will, quote, enter the district at a critical time when the foundation has been laid and key challenges have been identified, unquote. Over the last decade, the superintendent position at MMSD has seen relatively fast turnover, alongside financial pressures facing MMSD and many other school districts across the state. The search committee is prioritizing candidates who will remain in the position long term.
5: Our public is looking for someone that's very committed to the job of superintendent in the Madison School District and working to support the needs of all of our learners.
6: But after the feedback sessions and surveys, the public's role in the superintendent vetting process isn't done yet. The deadline for community members to submit nominations to participate on next month's interview panels is tomorrow at 5 p.m. That's also the deadline to recommend questions for the interview panels to ask finalists. You can submit your questions or nomination online on the MMSD website, and the link to do so will be included in the online version of this story. On winter break, to report for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish.
0: Last week, Republican lawmakers held a public hearing on a bill that would require school districts to make curriculum and instructional materials publicly accessible, not just to parents, but to any resident of the school district. Jonathan Friedman works for Pan America, a nonprofit that advocates freedom of expression. Friedman researches book bans and other legislative restrictions on education in the US. He tells WORT reporter Sarah Gabler that Wisconsin's education transparency bill is part of a national movement of educational intimidation led by conservative politicians.
7: Jonathan, would you mind briefly telling me what PEN America is and what you do in your role as the director of free expression and education programs?
0: Sure. PEN America
3: is a 100-year-old literary and free expression organization. We champion and celebrate creative expression, and we defend the civil liberties that make it possible. In my role, I oversee our research, advocacy, um, and education surrounding efforts at educational censorship or to protect free speech in schools and colleges and universities.
7: Then it's no surprise why I'm talking to you today um, on the topic of education and free expression because in Wisconsin there was a bill that I, I was reporting on last week, Assembly Bill 368, which would require school boards to allow any school district resident to inspect curriculum or instructional materials within two weeks of that resident's request to view those materials. And I'm curious, given your research, um, what stands out to you about this bill?
3: Well, I think what's important to understand is that there is a national movement underway to really either exert direct pressure or censorship on schools or find other ways to almost indirectly um, put teachers and uh, librarians on notice that, you know, what they're teaching they ought to be you know, extremely nervous about, that they um, you know, ought to censor what it is that they're teaching. This began a few years ago with explicit prohibitions, you know, national conversation about you know, not teaching about critical race theory, or the 1619 project from the New York Times, or about gender and sexuality, like which was spearheaded originally in Florida. But the point is that now, three years into this, while that is continuing, we're also seeing this effort to basically, you know, muddy the waters around what it is we think of as the limitations of parents' rights when it comes to students in schools, and essentially developing mechanisms that might seem on their face reasonable, but when you dig into them and think about how schools have historically worked, you start to see how they're actually designed to, you know, intimidate, suppress, or basically just make the bureaucracy surrounding schools much more complicated for teachers.
7: So this bill here, which has this mechanism of curriculum transparency, then contributes to this larger movement towards what you and the Pan America report call educational intimidation.
3: That's exactly right. You know, I think the the concept of transparency for government institutions. That's something critical. That's so important in a democracy. And you know, we're, we're not against that notion of transparency. I, I think what is key here is to understand how that terminology is being warped in such a way as to disrupt how schools normally do this. You know, most schools do, you know, most public education systems do publish curricula. You know, they purchase textbooks. But they also, at the same time, recognize that there needs to be a degree of professional discretion for uh, teachers to, you know, enhance students' lessons, for librarians to make decisions about what kinds of books are available to serve, you know, diverse communities with a wide range of reading abilities. I think what is often, you know, not well understood is that bills like this one essentially make it so that. Teachers have to scramble to meet new needs to kind of show "quote unquote" instructional materials or library materials to you know anybody who wants to see it. And while you know there really isn't necessarily a problem with that, you have to understand that the. Uh, limitations of that desire to inspect are often unclear. In many cases, these kinds of bills are coupled with language about rights of people to then challenge those materials and object to them. And um, you know, while you know, many school districts and school boards do have opportunities for public comment, and I do think those are important when it comes to material selection, we also have to recognize that there's a degree of expertise in setting curriculum. And you know, just because, I don't know, one parent maybe objects to some aspect of science, does that mean that like all students in a school shouldn't be teaching it? That a teacher should be forced to feel like, you know, if they're teaching about that topic and, and using you know, verified factual information that they should feel nervous about it? That is really what's at the heart of a lot of this.
7: The idea of transparency is a good thing, but the rhetoric being used here about transparency becomes like a smoke screen for the politicization of education.
3: Absolutely. Uh, you know, think about it this way. If you are a parent and you want to know what your child is learning in school, you have a range of ways of doing so. Number one, talk to your student's teacher. Number two, attend a curriculum night. Number three, you know, meet, meet with a, uh, a teacher or a principal and, you know, flip through some textbooks, etc. You know, a lot of this has historically existed reliant on a kind of relationship between individual educators and individual parents. What these bills basically do is they put around that new legislative, essentially like new law that would say that, you know, if you want to inspect something, uh, you can do so and a school must comply with that within two weeks and you don't even have to be a parent. So you're basically um, putting a lot of pressure on schools and school districts and teachers to comply with what could be essentially an endless Um, fishing expedition to find, you know, materials that people want to object to. And it's that fishing expedition that, you know, has no bounds around it and that has been used essentially to then intimidate teachers or to, um, you know, just overwhelm the system. We're seeing this in Florida right now already where, you know, new laws about books in schools are leading books to just, you know, in the face of demands to, you know make things public and and uh, defend every choice you know a lot of times it's just easier to suspend books and materials altogether so you know the cumulative effect of this is shrinking the horizon of what it is that constitutes a high quality education that's highly alarming you know there's nothing wrong with people who want to be engaged citizens in a democracy involved in what it is that we teach in public schools we all have a stake in creating, you know, a society of citizens that is informed, where we embrace debate, where we are able to wrestle with you know, complex topics, whether that's history or identity or, you know, questions of running the economy, like, you know, none of that should be so controversial and so difficult for us to do. I think what we have to reckon with here is that these are laws that are being written essentially to politicize this further to give, um, you know, like lone individuals greater power to disrupt education and challenge what's taught in schools. Um, than they had before, and this is where you have to question what the real motives are behind this and how it fits into that broader you know, national uh, picture. In some states, they do and have had success with passing some of these bills, and I think they've already proven disastrous. You know, In Montana, um, in Tennessee, there are bills that have um, these requirements that parents be notified about certain topics, uh, certain specific topics, you know, like a month in advance. But what that means is that you can't basically answer students' questions, and then, you know, in, in Tennessee, a, a, a librarian told parents she was going to teach a book about a kid who had no mom um, for Mother's Day last year, and then, you know, somebody said, well, you know, you can't teach that to my kids, and since I know it's on the docket to be taught on a certain date, I'm going to petition basically the principal to stop you from teaching it, and she was, that mother was successful. The teacher was told um, she couldn't teach that lesson. So. In, in all of these places, you see a very similar playbook, and it is politically motivated, it is consistent across state lines. Maybe not all of these bills are passing, but some of them are, and they are starting to do real disruptive damage.
7: I wanna thank you for um, sharing your insights today about some of the legislation that is in the works here in Wisconsin.
3: Great, thank you so much.
1: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Amy Owen, here with my co-host, Dan Grauchner. Thanks for joining us.
0: Every other Thursday, we bring you an excerpt from the Out of D-Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, feature contributor D-Star sits down with Steven Spiro and James Morgan to talk about the importance of meditation in prison. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Starr, here with- Steven Spiro. And
4: James Morgan. For the people that don't know you, Steven, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Where I'm from? Well, you know, I grew up as a military kid, so, I, you know, I, I'm from everywhere. You know, you know how that is. But I've been in Madison a long time, Madison area. The Wisconsin Prison Mindfulness Initiative is a group of volunteers who are all meditators, some of us very long-time meditators who've done a lot of training in it. We formed eight, nine years ago, something like that. And we've been going into various prisons in the state to form groups and f- create connections around the skills of meditation and mindfulness. There's about 40 volunteers right now, and we're in about 13 different institutions typically we go in once every two weeks and do our classes do our groups during the pandemic we kept all the groups going on zoom once the uh, institutions got their technological act together we were able to to meet in person uh, with assembled groups still do our groups prior to that we actually created dvds and sent them in to be played on the institution channel and so people people couldn't participate, but they could watch them. And those were successful that they actually, they were sent to the prisons in the state of Indiana and also state of, of Illinois, because what we were teaching was, was universal. It wasn't specific to any particular group. But later on, once we got the to Zoom together, we were able to not only have our groups, but we were able to meet one-on-one with, with people. So. Pretty, We did pretty well, I think, even in the pandemic. So why is this work so important? It always has been. Human beings have been meditating everywhere in the world for really for thousands of years. And the reason that we do it is because it works, because it's it's practical. It helps us. There's a lot of discussion about where it originated and nobody knows. But one little story about that um, is that if, if you were... Uh, many, many years ago, if you were in a tribe and you had to provide food for your family and for the tribe, you had to hunt successfully. And so you would sit in a tree or behind a bush with your, with your bow and arrow waiting for that deer or whatever it was you were hunting. And you may have to wait a long time sometimes. So you had to be very relaxed if you shifted around and made noise, no lunch, right? You had to be very alert, right? You couldn't go to sleep. So you had to have these two qualities at the same time, being relaxed and being alert. That's meditation. We're, we're encouraging people, whether they're in prison or uh, We teach outside of prison too. I mean, I teach all, in all kinds of different places. In order to find some kind of peace within your own self, Without drugs, without TV, without distractions, to find some kind of peace, you have to be able to get still. And when you're in an environment like a prison, peace is a rare commodity. You're probably gonna have a hard time finding it outside of yourself, but you can find it in yourself. Everybody has that capacity. There are only three requirements you have to have a body, check that one off. You have to have a mind, check that one off. And you have to have breath, you have to be breathing. That's all, those are the only requirements. That and an interest and a curiosity to try this out. For many of these guys, even the very idea of sitting still without moving with your eyes closed or looking down for 10 minutes, impossible, It, it can't be done. And what they find is not only can it be done, but it can be very pleasurable. Once you cross that threshold of resistance, to doing this. You discover that place of peace that's within you. You don't create it, you discover it because it's always there. And once you find, it's like f- being in a desert and finding an oasis, finding a well where there's w- fresh water. Once you find it, you can always go to it. It's always there. It's always been there. And from there, everything else unfolds because they suddenly, people realize that I'm not at the mercy of my environment. I'm affected by it. I'm not at the mercy of my past. I'm affected by it. But I can find this place of peace within myself and allow my wisdom mind to come through. So people call it different things. They call it the soul. They call it your conscience. They call it your second mind. They call it your big self. There's all these different names for, we call it mindfulness, your mindfulness, right? So this sounds very abstract, but let me just give you an example. So if I say to you, just for a moment, just close your eyes for a moment and think of an apple in your mind. So you can do that, right? You can see this apple perfectly, right? And you could even maybe imagine feeling it or smelling it, tasting it. You can make this apple a real thing in your mind. So the question is, are you the apple? And from the point of view of meditation and mindfulness, the answer is no. You are the one who created the apple and you're the one that perceives the presence of the apple. So you're bigger than the apple. You're bigger than your thoughts. You're more than just your thought. And this is the doorway to wisdom because people think that we're just our thoughts. Well, where did they come from? It came from our parents, from our society, from our friends. All this information telling me who I am. And we believe it. But It's not true. It's just thoughts. It's just thoughts, right? So the one who perceives the thoughts, the one who's aware of thinking, that's the deep self. That's the mindfulness. And when people discover that in their own self, they never have to go back. Because suddenly... They're the one who can say, well, I'm making a T with my hands, like time out. Say, time out, wait a minute. I don't have to believe all these thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just like clouds in the sky with a wind. They're going to vanish. They're going to reappear. I'm the one who's present, me. I'm in charge. So we're trying to empower people with their own wisdom, with their own liberation we're not giving people something we're empowering them and then it's just like you said D the light can go on wait a minute hold it i don't have to think the same way i don't have to behave the same way as i always have i can do something different right <laughs> so that's mindfulness that's that's the power of mindfulness that, that that we're
0: we're trying to connect people
4: to their own mindfulness
0: that was d star host of the Out of D-Box podcast, talking with Stephen Spiro and James Morgan.
1: This week on The House Always Wins, John and Allie, carpentry instructors and parents who will remind you that we can't afford to heat the whole neighborhood, discuss how heat pumps can help us break up with our gas-fired furnace and electricity hogging AC. i call the housework.
5: everyone I'm John
8: and I'm Allie and welcome to the house always wins where you learn cool stuff about your house
5: we all love cool stuff Hey Ellie, we are in cold weather territory these days uh, and more cold weather is probably coming cause you know, this is Wisconsin. And I know it gets people thinking about their various heating systems and whether it's keeping their home comfortable or not. Oh yeah, it's totally
8: been on my mind. Um, I have a three unit building and there is one furnace that heats the whole building. Ooh. There's also one thermostat. And so one tenant controls everyone's comfort. Ooh. And suffice to say, that means that two out of three tenants
5: are usually uncomfortable. Ooh, that's not a that's not a great percentage track. Yeah, like that two out of three. That's that's. Oh, wow.
8: Yeah. So I, I started researching some other heating and cooling options to try to give everybody some control over their
5: comfort. And uh, what you're describing is not uncommon, right? Most of our homes have forced air furnace here in Wisconsin. I mean, there's a few that don't from the majority of us. It's a furnace that burns natural gas or propane heats the air that gets forced throughout the house via all these large metal ducts that run in our floors and our walls and you know the further the air has to travel the more heat it loses on its journey and a little less push it gets and then those rooms kind of at the end of things can become less comfortable farther away from the furnace so then therefore people will crank up the thermostat and it ends up kind of making things all kind of out of whack and some parts too hot too cold oh my god
8: yeah. It's super inefficient. It's expensive. And really, it doesn't leave anybody happy with the situation. Right. Um, so that's why I started looking at heat pumps. Hmm. Now, heat pumps are a, a type of heating and cooling that have been around for a long time. And if you're wondering what a heat pump is, think about that heating and cooling unit that you often see in a motel room.
5: Right. That, up in the wall, kind of a high height. Yeah, sure. Or under the window. Or under the window. And and that, right, it, right. That right. heat
8: pump In the motel room, think about it, it is not the sole heating and cooling system of that building. Mm -hmm. It is really meant as a supplementary heating and cooling and it's very localized to your room so that's that is a type of heat pump but what we're talking about here are a much more modern heat pump installed in homes and designed for our climate much better than the ones you see in motel rooms so why don't you give people a little background on what a heat pump is
5: yeah it has been around forever and actually air conditioners are a form of heat pump unbeknownst to most people it uses basic thermodynamics of heat goes to cold And also the basic thermodynamics of when matter changes state from liquid to a gas, it either takes on heat or gives it off. Right. That's correct. And, you know, that's where Freon comes in. What it does, it was a gas that it was easy to compress and turn into a liquid. And when you let it expand, it would turn into a gas. The way I like to explain to people is like if you fill your hot tub. No, not your hot tub, your bathtub. If you fill your bathtub. With cold water, and you let it sit there for a while, what you'll notice is that the air above that water cools off. Even after a while, when the water itself is no longer cool, that air will always stay cool because it slowly evaporates. And that evaporation takes heat out of the air and leaves the air around it cooler. So when something evaporates, it takes on the heat, leaving the air around it cooler. And so that can work both ways. And essentially, that's how an air conditioner and a heat pump works using evaporation to either take heat on or let heat off.
8: What's happening is that refrigerant materials being pumped inside, outside, inside, outside. Right. And the thing that is kind of, I think this hard for people to grok is that on a really cold winter day, that refrigerant goes outside and it picks up heat from the exterior Yeah. because the exterior temperature, whatever that is, the outside temperature is still a bit warmer than the refrigerant is. Yeah. That's how it's able to collect that heat.
5: Yeah. Um, I think people will often think of, well, if it's super cold out there, how can you bring that air in and be warmer? But it's not the air you're bringing in. You're using that air to create the phase change so in the summer a heat pump basically just reverses so in cooling mode the process of reverser literally is a switch inside of there that click and flicks and the refrigerant everything starts running backwards the refrigerant picks up the heat from inside the home and the heated refrigerant which is now a gas goes to the outside releases that heat to the outside becomes liquid and goes back in and just continue on and away it goes Mm -hmm. So that's how that essentially that's how it works.
8: Yeah, it's a closed it's a closed loop system, basically. Right. So the beauty of the thing of this heat pump is that it can both heat and cool. And what's improved over the years and why today's heat pumps are so much better than those motel room versions is Mm -hmm. that modern heat pumps can pick up heat from air temperatures down to zero degrees. Although there's some models that can do better than that. And they can dump heat into air up to around 95 degrees. So that's kind of their range of the, of the vast majority of heat pumps available these days, the refrigerants have improved and the ability of the equipment to condense and evaporate the refrigerant has improved significantly. But an astute listener will note that we occasionally see temperatures below
5: zero what or above 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry. I don't understand that. What do you so mean? what then? Well, there is, that's the rub. And that is the thing about a heat pump is it might not always be up to the task during those extreme temperatures. It'll definitely be less efficient, even if it is working in those extreme temperatures, which is why most HVAC professionals recommend a backup heat source. So,
8: as a backup, you might use some sort of more localized heater, uh, an electric space heater, electric baseboard heat. Some people have wood-burning stoves, so they can use they can burn wood as that backup source of heat. Right. Uh, because one thing you you'll note is if you use an electric space heater and a heat pump is electric, when the power goes out, both of those are out.
5: That's right. That's not good.
8: Yeah. And so, in any case. Given, given these limitations, why are people still installing
5: air source heat pumps? Well, efficiency, that's the biggest reason. You could say, well, why not just put in electric baseboard heaters? But they're incredibly inefficient and it's the cost. You know, they use so much electricity, they cost to go through the roof. Whereas the heat pumps are super efficient through electricity. It uses a third to even just a quarter of the amount of electricity than any other heating or cooling. And because they run on electricity, they can also be run on renewable energy, such as solar. Of course, a lot of our electricity comes from fossil fuels, but more and more is being produced from renewable sources of energy. I myself, I've got my solar panels on my roof and i am going to put one of these systems in mine will be running on the solar panels and uh the thing is that that gas burning furnace that we both currently have it's it'll never run on the renewable energy no gas will never be
8: a renewable energy nope that's just how it is with uh with fossils as I think about my three-unit building and, and I haven't quite decided but I'm thinking that two units that they, the two upper units they have no control over their comfort. They're going to get these ductless mini splits. Mm. So really very uh, minimally intrusive. There is like a, a, a unit that sits on the, on the wall which isn't in my opinion very attractive uh, but you know no additional duct work and then they'll be able to control those for both heating and cooling. Nice. The downstairs unit that's kind of a, a different conversation. Is, is that the one one-third of the two-thirds, one-third? That's that's the one-third. They're they're the happy, (laughs) she's a happy one there. There you go. Um, Yeah, and for that one, I'm probably gonna go with a heat pump that actually uses the existing ductwork. So really, those look exactly like a furnace. They're just an electric appliance that's attached to your same ductwork.
5: Yeah, well, that's all we have time for to talk about today, but uh, we both are definitely thumbs up for the heat pump situation. We love it a lot. So if you have any questions for us about home improvement, construction, or other carpentry you'd like us to answer, please drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org, and we'll see you next time. See you next
0: time. In 2011, an earthquake and tsunami caused catastrophic damage to the northeastern coast of Japan. Debris from the disaster washed into the Pacific, including a motorcycle inside a storage container. The storage container drifted over 4,000 miles over a year after the tsunami was discovered on a beach in British Columbia, Canada. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor, Jennifer Fields sits down with Natalie Wright, a design history PhD student in UW-Madison's School of Human Ecology. Wright tells Jennifer the story of this iconic symbol of freedom and its journey across the ocean.
9: Involuntary memories essentially mean when something that holds memories, like we're talking about objects, so an object that seems to have very personal memories. For example, when it is not preserved and remembered in society the way that objects normally are so if it's in a museum or family collection let's say an object that's kind of been been lost and the first time that I encountered this was when I was studying abandoned spaces in the United States and objects that seem very very personal that have been lost and not cared for anymore
8: so it's kind of like when you see on television maybe the town that was evacuated due to Chernobyl and you see a bunny rabbit or somebody stuffed animal or maybe a book or a diary or a hairbrush things that things of personal grooming always tend to strike me a little bit more because you can sort of create a narrative around who could have possibly used it
9: right exactly yeah and and um i think your reaction to people's personal grooming objects is, it's very highly connected to the missing body and, and your imagination running to kind of fill in that gap of who was this? And um, Peter Mark, the man who found the tsunami bike was very much doing this. When he found the, the Harley motorcycle, he was really thinking, who was this person? I feel very connected to them from my being close to this person's very personal objects you know there's a there's a huge amount of trash in the ocean as well so this object being personal and individual is very different from other objects that beachcombers find that are that are often kind of anonymous and part of this collective trash field that's that's in the ocean.
8: This bike travels from one man's personal possession in a storage container after a a tragic event Mm -hmm. for a thousand miles So while it is detritus in some sense, it has that extra sort of, you see it, you make that connection, and then you start to become part of its story.
9: I think that the iconic nature of the Harley-Davidson Brand really made this object recognizable and understandable to Peter Mark when he found this item. He could kind of empathize with Mr. Yokoyama, even because Peter Mark was riding on his own ATV when he found this item, that he could really feel as though, you know, I am similar to this unknown person who possibly perished in the, in the Japanese tsunami because we have kind of these similar interests. You know, Harleys are perceived as um, such personal items as well because many people use them to, to construct their identity through purchasing the object.
8: Does this somehow change our relationship to the event itself? Does it somehow connect us with
9: people who went through this? I think that's a great question, and that's really what I've been trying to examine by researching this object. Because people felt as though they were connected to these individuals. It's I think it's a difficult question to figure out whether or not an object really allows you to understand someone's experience of disaster. But what I found really interesting was that so many people, um, Peter Mark and the global audience who became really fascinated by this story felt as though they could connect to Ikiyo Yokoyama's experience through seeing this, this motorcycle and, and, and experiencing it in person. But I think what you can say is that by viewing the motorcycle and being close to it, the materiality of the bike and the physicality of it, Brings a sense of reality to um, to the disaster that may not have been possible before, because maybe you were just seeing images, you know, online or on television. There was so much very moving and, and difficult to to watch video footage that um, that individuals and witnesses had taken from this event, and and many people were deeply affected by these images, but objects would make this event real in in a different way.
6: What drove you to this object?
9: Well, my background is in immigration studies and material culture. So I was first interested in the tsunami debris that was coming across the ocean because they're kind of a, a, a new case study for migrant objects or what we might more appropriately called displaced objects, and the way that they have been moved, not by a human hand, but by nature and by the ocean. So really here, the ocean is the agent in migrating them across this vast space of the Pacific Ocean. But I'm really interested in what other people find. Uh, So when other people find objects moving, And so, you know, I I was really taken by the reactions that individuals had and and the kind of the cultural phenomenon that they became. You know, they spurred books, children's books, Facebook videos. They really really did become a a cultural phenomenon. So I was really intrigued by, you know, why people became so connected to these objects um, and also how they allow us to understand how contemporary disasters are understood and dealt with Today. So, um, you know, the distance between Peter Mark and Ikio Yokoyama, and how these objects could enable Peter Mark to reframe his own experiences and feel a really deep sense of empathy with Ikio Yokoyama. So, yeah, really thinking about how these objects um, tell us about how contemporary disasters are understood around the world today.
8: For W.O.R.T.,
1: I'm Jennifer Fields. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to W.O.R.T.'s live local news at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your reporters tonight were Sarah Gabler and Willow Polish. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Star, John Stephanie, and Allie Bereni and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Amy Owen.
0: And I'm your host, Dan Graupner. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.